This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Well, take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to the book of James. We want to continue our study in chapter 3. I want to reread for you in verse number 14 because there are several categories that we took some time to identify and, and uh, examine a little bit more carefully uh, because there are several things here in this passage of Scripture and we took some time to go through each and every one and where we left off with. Let me read the verse. But if you have bitter envying, jealousies, those kind of things, and strife in your hearts, first of all, glory not. Well, I won't say first of all. Let me say we talked about this thing of envying. Then we talked about this thing of strife. And then we talked about uh, boasting and bragging and those kind of issues James was dealing with. But then he gets to this place here and he says, and lie not against the truth. And in my Bible, I've underlined those words, lie not. And I left off with an illustration um, that I could go in several different ways directions with this particular passage tonight and this uh, component of scripture. Uh, but the thing that I chose to talk about last time we were in this study was how important our words are, how important to, to speak the truth is. A lot of times we can say things so hastily and maybe so angeredly that uh, we cannot take those words back. We cannot retrieve them. Uh, once they're spoken, they're spoken, and uh, we can go through the motions and everything we know how to do, but if we're not careful, sometimes our words are not retrievable. And in this particular portion of James' instruction to us, and when you, when you stop and think about all of the verses prior to this one verse, you can see clearly how James is fired up. He's, he's got some passion in what he's talking about. And remember, James was not a believer until after the resurrection. He was the brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same household with him. But he did not embrace his brother as the Messiah until after that. But all of a sudden now, as he's pastoring the early church, the first church of Jerusalem, we have him elevated in this uh, tremendous uh, presentation to us on our behavior, our mannerisms. And he says, and lie not. And I chose to go in the direction of some of the great lies of the Bible. And I wanted to um, conclude with that before we go on with verse number 15 tonight. And when I say some of the great lies of the Bible, I don't want to miss lead you, I want you to understand that everything in the Bible is true. But there are some things that happen in the scriptures that were in fact lies that scripture deals with. For example, the illustration that we were leaving off with in our last time we got together was the wandering Amalekite. You remember he came to David and he said, hey, I've got some information for you. Here is Saul's crown and here is his 
his uh, parts of his armor and so forth. And he, and he puffed himself up and he said, and I'm the one who killed him. And that's not true. And because, and I don't want to take time to go through all of those scriptures again tonight, but as a result of that man telling one of the great lies that the scripture records, uh, David said, uh, your life is going to be required of you because that's not true. That just did not happen. And David knew it. There was no reason for the Amalekites to make peace with the Israelites. And there were a number of things that just were red flags to David. And so there was another incident, and most of you may be more familiar with this particular great lie that we remember that is told in the scripture, and that was found in Acts chapter 5. When, uh, in fact, that was one of the devastating lies that was told. Uh, in fact, when Ananias and Sapphira told these particular lies, it was like the serpent who had weaved his way into the Garden of Eden in, in the beginning. Now, the serpent, it was almost like he was weaving his way back through Acts chapter 5 again. And uh, that particular episode of them lying uh, was revolving around the love of money. And by the way, when I when I started studying that episode, refreshing my memory on some of these happenings, I was quickly reminded about Simon the Sorcerer. Some of you know a little bit about him in the scriptures, and it was the love of money that chased that man around. If you stop and think about it, it was the love of money that turned Judas into a traitor. And so those episodes, when I read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I'm quickly reminded of others who had the same uh, attraction for it as well. Now, the thing that, I, in fact, I, I want to go there just for a minute. I hadn't intended to do this, but turn your Bibles, hold your place, and James will come back to it. I want you to see this in, in Acts chapter 5. Something jumped out of the pages of Scripture when I was studying this passage that uh, put my study in another direction that I had not ever really seriously focused on. I, I certainly had an awareness, but not uh, to the magnitude of putting some study to it. But I, I want you to see something here. In Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, But a certain man, Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. All right? Now, here's the thing that brought a little bit more of a study in my direction, and that's this, that the, the Scripture does say that Ananias and Sapphira sold this property. But the thing that I find very interesting in the scripture about this is they didn't have to do it. Nothing compelled them. Nothing necessitated. Nothing, it wasn't a mandate. They did not have to do that. And so when you understand this part of the story, Yes, we are, we're all familiar that they sold the property and then they lied about the profits that was made. And those of you that are watching at home tonight, maybe you're familiar with the story. But the one thing that I was impressed with in my recent study is this, this the fact 
that they did not have to do it, which brings it full circle all the way back around that because they did not have to sell the property, they did not have to tell the lie. So this is the thing that I want you to, it got complicated by the minute when they were involved in this. But in verse two, the Bible says, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy acknowledging uh, knowledgeable of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. But Peter in verse three said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Because here's what was happening. People were so moved and touched by the needs of the church and what was going on in the work of God that they were really doing phenomenal and astronomical things to move the ministry forward. If you remember back in the Old Testament, uh, the people were bringing in so much love offerings that Moses had to say, stop. I don't have anywhere to put it. It's, it's, we, we, we're at the brim. We, we just have enough stop. Lord knows we're never going to get to that place. But that was the truth. Now, in this situation, Peter is confronting Ananias because here's the thing. Something motivated Ananias to be in this contributing this contribution category. And this is what him and his wife had conspired to do. And you're going to see this in verse number four here in just a minute. And, uh, in chapter five, basically, he wanted to simulate what Barnabas had done. But Ananias and Sapphira, they, they got themselves together and they said, look, we, we know the work of God needs to be funded. We we we're aware of the needs and so forth. So we got this piece of land back here. We're, let's, let's sell it. And then what we will do, we will go to the brethren and say, we've done this mighty thing and we've sold this property. Here's the money for it. But what Ananias and Sapphira did was they kept back a portion of it, but they presented themselves as saying, this is all of it. And as a result of now again, they didn't have to sell it. And they didn't have to, as, as a result of not having to sell it, they didn't have to tell the lie. But they jumped all in with the scheme. Ananias says, look, nobody will ever know it. Uh, this is our business. This is our affair. So let's just, let's just pretend like we're in this spirit of revival like everybody else is. And we're giving our all, all to Jesus, I surrender. And so let's jump all in and we're going to bring our offering in and we're going to present ourselves as doing this great sacrificial thing like everybody else did. And when you look at verse number four, well, look at the remainder of verse number three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled that heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Okay, you, you made it clear that this is what you did and uh, this is all of it, but that's not true, and you know it. And he said, while it remained, was it, in, was it not thy own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? You see, what Peter was doing, he's saying, listen, 
You didn't have to tell the lie. If you wanted to give some of the money, you should have said that. But you, you have presented yourself in, in the realm of falsehood. And he said, why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men. You come in here and do this thing. He said, you've not done this. This is not a lie to men, but you have done it unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all of them that heard these things. Now look at this. I want to continue on in just a minute with, with something that happened, and the explanation goes along with uh, chapter 5, but here as well, and we'll get down to verse number 29 in a minute. Let me read this passage here. And the young men arose, wound him up. You get the idea. They're preparing him for burial. Carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Now, she knew the conspiracy they had plotted together. But she didn't know he was dead. She didn't, she didn't know he had dropped it. Peter's answered unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Did y'all really do this? Did you really do what Ananias said? And, and Peter not telling her that he was dead. And she said, yeah, we, we, everything he told you is true. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. But I want you to go all the way down to look at verse number 29. This kind of helps you to understand it a little bit better. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. And by the way, this is the, this is the guy that taught Saul of Tarsus everything he knew about the law. You, you find in a place where Paul, known as Saul, then studied at the feet of Gamaliel. A doctor of the law had a reputation among all the people commanded to put the apostles forth uh, a little space and said unto them, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For these days rose up Thaddeus boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men about 400 joined themselves who were slain and all as many obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up, Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished. And even as many as obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let him alone for it is counsel of this work uh, be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. Now look at that. Ananias and Sapphira were pretending to do the same thing here. 
the deception was lying and it was at the very heart of what they were doing. And that's what we're talking about in James chapter 3 right now. But the thing that I want you to see is the last words that Ananias heard on the earth. Think about the last words that a man may say on the earth. Some of you can remember the passing of your friends or your loved ones and you remember the very last thing you heard them say. Well, think about the last thing, the very last thing that Ananias heard on the earth. Go back to verse number seven. And it was about the space of three hours after his wife, not knowing what was done, came in and Peter answered unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. And Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Ananias heard the same rebuke as Sapphira heard. The sentence for lying and really lying to the Holy Ghost, as Peter was saying, was death. And here's the thing, there was no time to repent. They had crossed that line. Now, I want to move on just a little bit father in this uh, and I, I want to be brief with this Ananias and Sapphira were sort of like copying what Barnabas did Barnabas got to a place where he sold some land and he gave it all to the church and Sapphira and Ananias wanted to simulate what he was doing Barnabas did it in all honesty and Sapphira and Ananias did it in deception and this was the result of that but I thought about this, and I don't. I, I could give you many illustrations tonight about what I call some of the great lies of the Bible. And I chose to pick the wandering Amalekite and this story about Ananias and Sapphira. But let me tell you what I believe to be the greatest lie of all. When Peter said, I know not the man. You think about that. What, what could be any more worse or devastating than that. So here, going back in James 3, James is dealing with this thing. He's dealing with people who are lying against the truth. So now let's move on to verse number 15. Pick up the pace a little bit here. The Bible says, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And so James points our attention to wisdom that is of the earth, of the world, carnal, and from unsaved people. That's the implication here. And let me emphasize there are a lot of smart people on the earth. But the wisdom that they have who are not saved, James is talking about it being carnal. The wisdom of God, there are two types of wisdom, the wisdom of the earth and then the wisdom of God. In verse number 17, and we'll go back to this in just a minute, but look at it. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And so Paul here, he was devoting a considerable amount of time contrasting the two different types of wisdom uh, that Existed, And let me show you this in 1 Corinthians. Go with me here to chapter 1. And I want you to see this in verse number 18. I'm going to read several passages for you, so I want you to stay here with me. 
In 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read verse number 18. We're talking about the two different types of wisdom, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world. And I want you to see the contrast that Paul makes in verse number 18. And then I want to read verses 1 through 16 for you in 1 Corinthians. But first, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And then in chapter 2, we'll read verse 1 through 16. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things of God, which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man? Save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words of man's wisdom, teaches which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so Paul is giving us a little reinforcement of what James is talking about in James chapter 3, verse number 15. And James is summarizing all of it, and he brings us to a key component of discussion and thought. He brings a key component to light. He says that the sort of earthly wisdom, he calls it devilish. You read it in the scripture. And in verse number 16, the Bible says this, James 3, 16, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. And all of us know the classic scripture where God is not the author of confusion. And so James is saying that earthly wisdom is the result of envy, strife, confusion. And now verse 17, look at this. James now turns to the wisdom that comes down from God. He goes through the explanation of the Wisdom that comes from men or the world or the earth. Now he's turning it back to the wisdom that comes from God. And I want you to see this. Where he has highlighted earthly wisdom, 
to envying and strife and boasting and lying. He said, this wisdom descended not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Now, verse number 17, he makes the distinction. He said, but the wisdom that is from above, notice this, is first pure. That means it's free from defilement. And here's the thing that you can be assured of, that heavenly wisdom will never, ever, at any point, condone anything that's vile or unclean. It's always embraced with the impeccable righteousness and absolute holiness of God. So here's what I admonish you to do. Whenever you're going to make decisions, remember what the word said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Whenever you get down to a place to make decisions and you feel like that you're on the path, you're on the course, and you feel like you know what you're going to do, compare your decision to this, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. So put that under a microscope. Is it pure? Secondly, look at this. James uses the word peaceful. And I want to share a verse with you coming from Solomon about wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 and 17. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace, verse 17. Now look at this. Look at this word peace. And it was an outstanding characteristic of what the early church was about in in its beginning, in its formation. You may want to write down here at this part of the scripture in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 7 through 9. I'm not going to take time to read that tonight, but it's a cross-reference that I have for you. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 7 and 9. All right, next in James 3.17, look at this. You'll find the word gentle. And James is talking about in this part of it, he's talking about an individual that is considerate of other people, a person that's that's easy and approachable, full of mercy, good fruits. Let me ask you something. When you think of this definition in the scripture, let's go back, say, for the Old Testament. Is there an individual that sort of like leaps off the page of scripture when you think about somebody that was full of pureness and and gentleness and peace, and compassionate. When I started doing that part of the study, one of the first people that I thought of who fit that to a T was David and his interacting with a young man called Mephibosheth. Do you remember him? Do you remember that story in the scripture? Do you remember Mephibosheth? He was Jonathan's son. David and Jonathan were best friends. And when David got the word that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in the battle, do you remember what David said? He said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? And somebody said, well, Jonathan has a son, but he's a crippled boy. He's he's in this place called Lodabar and uh it's it's a poor section of town and you, you, you don't want to bother with him, David. He's just an outcast. 
But when you read that story and you open up your heart to the compassion, the purity, the peace, somebody that was full of mercy, good fruits, good deeds, you can see exactly what David did for him. He, he told his servant, his, this guy's name was Ziba, and he said, I want you to go down to Lodabar and I want you to bring Mephibosheth back to my palace. You think about this. Well, you know, that's a bad section of town. You, you, we, don't, we don't need to be down there, David. David said, go get him. He was told that he was a crippled boy. He was living in poverty. David said, it makes no difference. I want you to go get him. He brought him back. Ziba brought him back, brought Mephibosheth to David's table. And the story goes like this, that David pretty much adopted Mephibosheth into his family and put him at the table of the king. He was a young man that was destitute, had nothing, was at the mercy of other people, and the king said, I'm going to ransom this man. I'm going to bring him back. Now you stop and think about it. Is that not like the sweet Lord Jesus? Didn't the sweet Lord Jesus find us when we were unlovable? when we could not help ourselves, when we were crippled with sin. And God, the Holy Spirit, brought us into the palace of the king when we gave our hearts to Christ. A beautiful story. Look at verse number 17 again. I want to continue this. We're just about out of time. Without partiality. And I want to close by saying this. But the wisdom of God, or but the wisdom that is from above, is first pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. I want to conclude with something I said in the study early back, and that is this, every single one of us are equal in the sight of God. There's none of us that sit or stand on a pedestal that's built in such a fashion to where one person is made higher than the other. I want to close by this one statement. When it comes to this thing between us and God, without partiality is what the word says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.